Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, the five solas, as you just heard, is a term used to designate five great foundational rallying cries for the 16th century Protestant reformers. You heard them, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola Christus, Christ alone, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. These five solas were developed in response to specific perversions of the truth that were taught by the corrupt Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Church taught that the foundation for faith and practice was a combination of the scriptures, sacred tradition, the teaching of the magisterium and pope. But the reformers said no. Our foundation is sola scriptura. When the reformers used the word sola scriptura, they were expressing their concern for the Bible's authority. And what they meant is that the Bible alone is our ultimate authority, not the Pope, not the church, not the traditions of the church or church councils, still less personal intimations or subjective feelings, but scripture alone. Other sources of authority may have an important role to play. Some are even established by God, such as the authority of church elders, the authority of the state, or the authority of parents over children. But scripture alone is truly ultimate. Therefore, if any of these other authorities depart from Bible teaching, they are to be judged by the Bible and rejected. I want to base what I have to say about scripture alone tonight on a familiar psalm, psalm number 19. So turn there with me, psalm number 19. We will proceed through the psalm as we go on, but for now I will just quote verse 10, and I'm using the old King James authorized version. Verse 10 says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. <laughs> How important is your Bible to you? <laughs> How important is it? Is it a relic of antiquity, gathering dust on your shelf? only to be pulled down on Sunday? Does it have no relevance in your mind to your 20th century life and experience? Is it mere reference material like a dictionary or encyclopedia which you occasionally use to research religious information? Or is it like the very air you breathe? Something that is indispensable for your very existence? We need a different look at scripture. Some churches and professing believers in Christ openly affirm the unparalleled importance of the Bible 
even while it is not featured prominently in their worship, their lifestyle, in terms of sermons of substance, daily study, regular meditation, and disciplined memorization. That last one has been left out a lot. <laughs> in short, formally, they acknowledge its importance, but practically, it is ignored. These people are not serious believers. No, they're not. Neither are they involved in serious churches. According to Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, in the early church, those who shepherd the flock of God's church were not to be so entangled even in the business and business of the church to the point that they neglected their main assignment, which is what? I quote, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. In the same light, the Apostle Paul admonished the young pastor at Ephesus called Timothy to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. He also told him in, in, in the passage just before the latter, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The difference between serious churches and serious Christians on the one hand, and those who merely have a nominal religious association with Christ on the other hand, is the place of the word of God in their daily lives. The Bible's place in their faith and practice. True believers are radical biblicists. Cults start when you depart from a radical biblicism and start to substitute it with alternative revelation. In this analysis of this um, familiar psalm, my interest is not in unraveling the profundity of each and every detail, but rather to generally demonstrate the indispensability of the Word of God. Practically, I hope to encourage everyone to listen well when the Word of God is read and taught. To that end, I want you to see our indispensable need for Holy Scripture alone under the following headings. One, the reality of man's, mankind's need. Two, the, the rationale for mankind's need. And three, the reconciling of mankind's need. Let's take them one by one. Number one, the reality of mankind's need. And I want to read the first six verses of the psalm. The reality of mankind's need. This is a real need. A real need. The psalm begins, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech, no language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through, through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Brothers and sisters, 
if there ever was a time that we need a real word from the Lord, it's now in this generation. We do not need new revelation, for God has spoken comprehensively to and through the appointed apostles and prophets who have produced our Bible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Neither do we need new inspiration, for we have a credible and infallible record in the 66 books of the Bible. What we need is regular and consistent illumination by the Holy Spirit as the word is preached and taught by qualified, called, and properly commissioned preachers today. We need a word from the Lord. The message of the psalm is that we need real, literal, actual words. Real, literal, actual words. Like what you're reading in your Bible. The first six verses of this psalm records a very important message um, in the study of the Word of God called General Revelation. Many of you would be familiar with this, as opposed to special revelation. Hmm? General revelation. These verses tell us that the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon, the natural order in general, the heavens declare or reveal the glory of God. These verses tell us, as it were, about God in nature. Every human being is getting information from the magnificence of the created order. I landed in Dominica before I came here, and I have I've been to Dominica on a number of occasions, and it was one of the most beautiful places on the planet. But when I came in, I mourned, because the leaves were gone from the trees. Oh, and I just tried to remember the splendor of flying into Dominica and worshiping God. But I still had to worship. <laughs> and I pray to God it will come back to even better than what it was before. You see, because nature speaks to us. The natural order speaks to us. In Romans 1.20 we read, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The magnificence of nature gives us powerful hints that there is a designer and a creator behind all things and, and that our minds and our hearts can appreciate this through simple, honest observation. However, the shocking point of this psalm in the first six verses is that it's not enough. Not enough. <laughs> it is very important to see here that though nature is going to tell you about God, it's not enough. With your unaided heart and mind and intuition and reason, looking at the world as it is, you can learn about God, but it's not enough. <laughs> you need real, literal words. You need words. You need your Bible. You need the scripture. It has a role to play that no 
nothing else can play. It alone is our standard for faith and practice. But why? Why is this the case? Look, for example, at verses 1 and 2 again. The heavens do what? Declare the glory of God. The firmament or the skies proclaim or show it what? His handiwork. Day after day they pour forth what? Speech. Night after night they display what? Knowledge. Then look at verse 3 now. They have no speech. Mm. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Now, if you read the King James, right, there's a word where. You see that? But the other translations suggest that we don't need the word where. Hmm? If you look at the NIV, you don't see the word where. Okay? Alright? An alternative translation is they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Now this alternative translation maintains the poetic paradox of wordless speech. Wordless speech. Verse 4 goes on to say, their voice goes out into all the earth. Do you see the paradox? Do you see it? There are words, but they are not words. What does that mean? What does that mean? You know, it is not hard to understand, you know. There is information coming, but it is non-verbal. The information from nature. You're actually getting real information, but it's non-verbal. You can get information across without words, can we not? People can infer information without words. This is why it's not wise to counsel people over the telephone. Because they may be saying, yes, pastor, yes, pastor, they're rolling their eyes. I can't see the rolling of the eyes. <laughs> Someone could be agreeing with you, but not really agreeing with you because you're not getting the speechless or the, the non-verbal communication. Nature gives us non-verbal communication. But the message is, it's not enough. We actually need some words. <laughs> Nature is not giving you literal words. There are no literal words to hear about God. There are no literal, no literal words to read about God. Yet you're getting information from nature. The problem with that, and the limitation with that, is that it is very mistakeable. For example, if you're traveling, getting your directions from the stars, you're more likely to get lost, especially on a cloudy night. I'm sure then you would appreciate legible addresses, legible signs along the word, along the road, and better yet, GPS. Actual words, readable directions are more useful for giving directions than signs in nature, signs in the sky. Without scripture, you can know things about God and imagine things about God and get real ideas about God. However, the information from the natural world is very easily mistaken. Some people will look at the stars and see the handiwork of God. 
Others will look at the same stars and just see flaming bowls of gas. That's all. Some people will put snowflakes under the microscope and see the amazing uniqueness of each flake as well as the marvelous symmetry and intricate detail. Others will look at the same snowflake and just see a piece of ice from chance and coincidence. Some will worship while others will murmur. <laughs> that is just chance. The message of nature is not always abundantly declared to everyone. There are a lot of people who just don't get the message. Mm. Many of them will say, there is no message. Why? Of course, it is because there is no voice. There are no words. There is no real sound. The message of Psalm 19, 1 through 6. Well, well let's say Psalm 19 as a whole is that as great as nature is, it cannot revive your soul. It cannot give you what your heart needs the most. It can indeed give you information about the glory of God, but it cannot satisfy the cry of your soul. You need more. You need a more sure word. <laughs> you need a real Bible. Listen. We may learn from this psalm that the smallest verse in the scripture, the smallest statute or precept in the scripture is more valuable and soul transforming than all the gold in the world, all the mountains in the world. It is more nourishing and soul transforming than all the honey in the world because we're hearing here that it's sweeter also than the honey. So, so as great as nature is, and for all it can tell about God, it cannot sustain you spiritually. You need a word, literal word, real words from God. So I joined the, sing, the songwriter when he says, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see. Wonderful words of life, words of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Listen, I, I don't have to grope in darkness for God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. <laughs> I don't have to be, to, to be an existentialist foolishly inventing my own reality for the scriptures. In the scriptures I have a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. I don't have to be shallow perpetuating the ignorance of our talk show culture for I have a word from the Lord that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I don't have to be spiritually hungry for like the patriarch Job, I have esteemed the words of God's mouth more than my necessary food. The reality of man's, mankind's need. The reality of mankind's need. But let's, 
Let's move to the second thing here, which is the rationale for mankind's need. The rationale for mankind's need. I'm looking at verses 7 through 11. Verse 7 through 11, the rationale. I'm going to read those verses. It says, the law of the Lord is what? Perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is what? Huh? Sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is what? Pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is what? Clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are what? True and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is what? Great reward. Now listen. Why do we need that word, the Holy Scripture? Why? Why? The answer is twofold here. Without the Scripture, without actual words from God, we cannot, we cannot know about the love of God in general, or the grace of God in particular. Let me explain. The psalmist is saying that we cannot really know about the love of God apart from the word of God. We can't know about the love of God apart from the word of God. Please notice that in the first six verses, the word God is used in our English Bibles. Did you notice that? Look at it. The word God is used. The heavens declare the glory of God. You see that? That's the Hebrew word Elohim. It is the generic word for the great God. Alright? Now please notice that when the psalmist began to talk about Holy Scripture from verses 7 through 11, the word for God in our English Bible changes from God to Lord. Hmm? The law of the Lord, and Lord is L-O-R-D, caps, capital letters. This is the Hebrew tetragrammaton that has been transliterated into Latin letters as Y-H-W-H. It is a name for God that the Hebrews wrote but did not pronounce audibly. We today have added vowels and so we, we say Yahweh or we say Jehovah. Same thing. So he moved from God to Lord. Hmm? From Elohim to Yahweh. Hmm. What is important here is that this is the personal name of God. Yahweh is the name God gave to Moses at the burning bush experience. It is the covenant name. It is the name of God that he gives to people who have entered into a personal covenant love relationship with him. Mm. As clear as can be, Psalm 19 is telling us that if you want to know about God merely as a glorious, great, and magnificent God, all you have to do is look around at the natural world. 
the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows our handiwork. But if you want to know him in a love relationship, if you want to know that the infinitely high and transcendent God personally and intimately loves you in particular, the only way you're going to find that out is in the scripture. It is so sad that many have misunderstood what love that God has for his children. Many, many don't understand it, you know. It has been distorted. It has been mocked. Many imagine that they can all by themselves invent a love that is superior to the scriptural revelation concerning God's love. In fact, they reject the notion that the God of the Bible is love. They present many a new theory of how, how love should really work. But, but can there be real love apart from the God of the Bible? Can there be? Many continue to attempt it. But I submit to you that only scripture alone can tell you about real love. <laughs> Let me explain. Why is it that many who reject the notion that scripture is the only source of such information about intimacy and fellowship with God. It's simple. Many may be idol worshippers and not even aware of it. <laughs> they have invented their own God. Their personally concocted God has attributes of their own making. They have designed their God so that their idol never contradicts them. <laughs> people, people who make gods don't make gods to contradict them. Their gods are always going to agree with them. You want to do something, you make a god that will agree with you. Alright? You know, you know, my, my daddy used to have a little dog on his dashboard in his car that's always just giving you yes. <laughs> that's the kind of god many people want. Hmm? So um, you will hear them say things like, my God will never send people to hell for he loves everyone. They will say that. I can tell you this much, they are right. Their God won't do it, but the God of the Bible will. Mm. They have a different God. They just have a perverted understanding of who God is and what love is. You see, so some will say, when I read the Bible, I see this God of judgment and he's got all these laws and that sort of thing. I, I, I don't believe in a God of judgment. I believe in a God of love. That's why I don't believe that Bible. You know, the rainbow people will say, you know, I'm so sad they stole that rainbow. Hmm? <laughs> it's just about love. Why are you against people loving one another? Because it's not love. Where did that idea come from? Where did you get the idea that if there is a God, he must be a God of love without judgment? People don't want to be judged. <laughs> where, where did the idea come from? Did it come from nature? Did it come from nature? When you look around nature, did you get that idea from nature? Well, I look around nature and I see hurricanes. I see volcanoes. 
I see forest fires, I see avalanches, I see tsunamis, I see tornadoes. That don't look loving to me. Huh? One day you have your nice island, and another day your whole island is a rubbish heap. That's love? So you probably didn't get it there. They probably didn't get it there. Um, what about um, the natural selection? Hmm? Come on now. Hmm? Some people have this idea, you know, they believe in evolution. Hmm? Uh, is, is, is that where we got the idea of love from? Hmm? Uh, I like to tell my folks at home, you could cut to the chase. Maybe they would call it an oversimplification. <laughs> but you can cut to the chase with evolution rather than going to study some fossil record or a bunch of carbon dating and all of that stuff. Cut to the chase. What's happening with evolution? It's saying that matter creates itself. There's a big bang! Voila! Matter creates itself. But just think about that. Matter creates itself. Self-creation. Self-creation? If something creates itself, it has to be before it is. It has to exist before it exists. So they can do the creating. But if it already exists, why is it going to create itself? You see absurdity? But of course, sin makes you stupid. Can reason. You adopt. Did you get the love from that? <laughs> because the, the whole process is saying, what? There's a pack of animals and one of them is slow and diseased and the rest of them just turn on it and eat it. Is that where you got the love from? Probably not. Probably not. Huh? Well, did you get the love from um, uh, maybe history? Maybe history. Maybe you're a student of history and you got these ideas of love from history. Mm. Shall we find some loving historical figures and maybe that will inform the theology of a loving God who will not judge you? Mm? Well, before anyone attempts any kind of historical revisionism, Let's call some names like Joseph Mengele, <laughs> Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, or go back to Adolf Eichmann, or maybe Kim Il-sung, that's the granddaddy of the one right now in North Korea, huh? or, or maybe even Emperor Hirohito or Nero. Go right back to Nero, Caligula, Genghis Khan, oh, you can call all the names you want, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, Adolf Hitler, Stalin, do you just feel the love? Well, obviously they didn't get those ideas from history. Well, maybe world religions like Buddhism or, or Islam. But wait, theirs is not a god of love or a god of personal relationship. It is clear that the idea of a loving God didn't come from these sources. So where did anybody in the world ever come up with the idea of this infinite, transcendent God behind nature who is a God of love? If such a notion did not originate from nature or evolution or history or pagan world religions, where did it come from? The answer is simple. 
But many have twisted the Bible and perverted it to take the holiness out of it and even to rid themselves of judgment. But God, the God of the Bible, is a God of love who will always have a holy love. He's both just and justifier. You picked up on his love along the way and you did not know the source. Maybe that's the problem. So you've been plagiarizing the Bible all along without proper citation. You see, it is only, only the word of God, the God of the Bible that teaches of a loving God. There is really, frankly, no evidence of such love if it wasn't for the Bible. God is a God of love. It is the word that is used of God to regenerate and sanctify the soul. So, when the psalmist wrote, the law of the Lord is what? Perfect what? Converting the soul. Reviving the soul. That word reviving or converting is, is from the same Hebrew word that is translated in Psalm 23 verse 3 as restoring. Like, he restoreth my soul. Same word. Your soul is your essence. It is your your, your, your spiritual being, it, it is the heart of who you are. The word restore or revive indicates that something went wrong. It's like a house that is so derelict and so dilapidated that it is, uh, well, it's not fit to be occupied. Hmm? So the implication is that your soul has been crushed, your soul is in disrepair, it is in in desperate need of being restored. He restoreth my soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting or reviving or restoring the soul. Our souls are crushed and in dereliction. Partly because we are crushed by the troubles outside of us, the troubles of just living in this world and partly by the troubles that are within us our own sins and our own flaws we desperately need to have our souls restored reinvigorated refreshed revived looking at nature and seeing that there is a glorious god out there will not restore your soul <laughs> that might just make you feel smaller <laughs> hmm? the only thing that will restore your soul is the idea that this infinite transcendent God loves you and you you can enter into a personal relationship with him that revives a soul that restores a soul and the only place you're going to find that out is where scripture the scripture it is surprisingly a, a new orthodox theologian Karl Barth who gave a, mo a most profound answer to one of his theological students who asked in class, Professor, what is the greatest concept that you have ever learned? The professor slowly answered, hmm, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> Beloved, even after we have journeyed down the halls of academia, or seen the wonders of the world, or witnessed the hand of genius, or read the most prolific of authors. The essence of truth takes us right back to preschoolers in 
Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. It was his word that challenged the nonsense of our pretentious lives. It was his word that adjusted our noses to smell the stench of iniquity around us. It was his word that forced us to face the corruption of our souls. It was his word that emptied us of our pride and arrogance to bow to the foot of the cross. It was his word that pointed us to the rock of our salvation. It was his word that made us willing in the day of his power. It was his word that radically arrested us from the shackles of the enemy of our soul. It was his word that released us to a new freedom in holiness. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Scripture alone will bring you to God. Okay. I have one more thing to say before I sit down. Right? Okay, you heard what the reality of man's need. Then we look at the rationale for man's need. Thirdly now, the reconciling of man's need. And I'm looking at verses 12 through 14. You ready? Look at it. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Beloved, reconciling the demands of God's law with the call to the light in the same is truly an enigma. That is puzzling. The call to obedience is tough enough, but to delight in the law of God is quite another matter. I don't know if you're understanding what I'm saying. Hmm? How many of you will acknowledge that the call to obey God's law is a tough call? You, you'll agree with that, right? But you're not just being called to obey, you know. You are called to delight in it. So when you hear, thou shalt not commit covet, you say, yes, love it. <laughs> thou shalt not lie, that's it. Great. You're supposed to love this. <laughs> not just obey, you are to delight in it. Wow. What David is actually talking about is God's law, his commands, his ordinances, which is a reference to his rulings about conduct. This is very interesting, you know. Consider the commandments, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. You could go to all of them. It is very easy for us to understand that we can and must respect these statutes and try to obey them and assent to them in our hearts. But it is very hard to find how they could be to anyone literally delicious <laughs> and exhilarating. Mmm, mmm, almost like finger licking good. They are to be delicious. I, I chose that word. 
they are to be exhilarated. His law is supposed to be like that. Not just to be obeyed. To be loved. To be delighted in. Now, this response is not just expected in Psalm 19. Psalm 1, for instance, verse 2, says that the mark of a godly man or woman is that they delight in the law of the Lord and in this law meditate what? Day and night. Come on. You can quote it. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now what? Standeth in the way of sinners. Now what? Sitting in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. And in this law does he meditate day and night. This, he loved this so much. He just all day long, all night long. He's thinking about this. You know, that's what we do with what we love. If you love somebody, you're thinking about them all the time. Huh? He's saying this is what the law of the Lord should be like for you. Wow! They delight in it. This is the language of a person who is ravished by beauty. You look at the law of God and you see something beautiful. Wow! Wow! All of them, they're just beautiful. Mm. You don't look at those commandments and think, oh my, no, no, that's people who are not saved. <laughs> when you're saved, you look at these commandments and you say, wow, isn't that beautiful? What if, man, you start, you start, you start, you start saying things like that. What if everybody just follow that? What a wonderful place this would be. What if everybody put aside one day in seven to worship God? Oh, wouldn't that be just wonderful? What if people just respected the sanctity of life? Not just, they're just, they're just not going to kill anybody. They're, just, they're not going to even hate anybody. Life is precious. So, how is it possible for David to look at the perfect law of God demanding the righteous life and say oh I love that it's beautiful it's a delight how could it be how could he say that he about people <laughs> why is it reviving and restoring why isn't it just crushing because you when you look at the law of God doesn't it tell you all the things that are wrong with you come on be honest with me when you look at the law of God, what you're seeing is all that's wrong with you. You may not physically have broken a particular one, you know. Like the commandment, thou shall not kill. You haven't shot anybody, you haven't cut anybody's throat, you haven't poisoned anybody. But, but our Lord and his apostles have made it abundantly clear that if you hate anybody, it's the same thing to him. Even if you just hate them for five seconds. It's the same thing to him. So when you get to this law, <laughs> okay, they were the, the seventh commandment, huh? The sanctity of marriage. Hmm? Isn't that just crushing? You say, okay, 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 get me out of that. I have never committed adultery, really. 
says, if you've fantasized about it, you have done it. If you have tried to set it up, you have done it. He puts you in the same category as the one who has physically done it. In other words, he says, don't even lust. Wow. So now you see this law is so crushing. Mm. How could that revive the soul then? Doesn't it just make things worse? The answer is right here. Let's get to the answer. If you're not very careful, you can miss the point, you know. At the very end of the psalm, David begs for grace to keep away from sin. However, his plea has some very audacious words. Look at them. Let the words of my mouth, and what? The meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. Stop here. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. You see, the psalmist is looking both at his condition without and his condition within. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. What's coming out as well as what's going on inside. Then he asks that both his inner being and outward life be what? Acceptable or pleasing in the sight of God. <laughs> the word pleasing here in the King James can be also translated acceptable. Hmm? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be what? Acceptable or pleasing in thy sight. Mm. That word pleasing or acceptable is used in the Hebrew Bible to refer to sacrifices. Sacrifices. Pleasing. All through Leviticus and the Mosaic Law, it is demanded that worshippers um, bring animals to the tabernacle to be sacrificed. And that these animals must be what? Blameless and perfect. As a mother, we, Pastor and I were talking today even about the prophet Malachi. Huh? Who um, made it abundantly clear to Israel that they were not to go find the, the poorest looking lamb to bring for the sacrifice. Huh? He says, would you take that to your governor? If your governor needed some lamb chops, that's why you don't carry it to him? So you wouldn't take it to your governor but you're bringing it to the Lord. You need to bring something that is acceptable and pleasing. Mm. Something without flaws. Something without blemish. They were to give their best. Some, not something out of the herd that they would throw away or would cost them nothing. The Lord would only receive a perfect, acceptable, pleasing sacrifice. Now David seems to be asking for something very unrealistic at the end of the psalm. He is referring to himself and asking that his inner man and outward life be what? Acceptable or pleasing. Hmm to a holy God, an infinitely holy God. He's saying, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart come up to a holy God as an acceptable sacrifice. Now, if you know David, you know anything about him, his life was anything but pleasing. He was a notorious murderer and adulterer. How could he ask such a thing? Isn't that audacious? 
he ask such a thing? Is he naive? Well, we all know about Psalm 51, right? That was his prayer of repentance. And that's evidence that he was not naive. He understood the depths of his egregious sin. How then could he ask for such a thing? The answer is by the Holy Spirit. You see, David clearly was anticipating the work of the son of David, one of his descendants. So you have to pay attention. Huh? In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, the son of David, Jesus Christ our Lord, actually quotes David's words in Psalm 40, verses 4, verses 6 through 8, and applies those words to himself. Hmm, interesting. Jesus, the son of David, applies David's words to himself. It was Christ who enabled David to pray this prayer. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Christ is the man who did not absolutely... Well, listen. Christ was the man who not only absolutely delighted in the law, but meditated on it day and night. He obeyed it fully. Christ, in his active obedience, obeyed the law perfectly. Hmm? The Lord Jesus Christ did it absolutely perfectly. As a result, Christ deserved at the end of his life to be embraced by God the Father. He deserved the blessing and the embrace of the Father as one who had completed all the requirements of the law. But that's not what happened. Hmm? He was despised and rejected, wasn't he? At the end of his life, our Lord was not embraced. He was forsaken on a cross. He was tortured. He was abandoned by everybody, including the Father. He was treated as if he had not obeyed perfectly. Mm. Why? Why was he treated that way? <laughs> I quote to you 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, that's God the Father, for he hath made him, that's Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made what? The righteousness of God in him. I'm going to go over that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, that's a reference to God, he hath made him, that's a reference to Christ, to be sin for us. He hath made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin? Christ knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. <laughs> the Lord Jesus took the curse of disobedience to the law so that we could receive his blessing of his perfect obedience to the law. We were trading places. Hallelujah. In theology, we like to say imputation, you know. But what's happening here is he took all of our mess and gave us all of his merits. Hallelujah. He took it all. What does that mean? David by himself could not give God the Father a perfect sacrifice. But David's greater son, the son of David, Jesus Christ our Lord, who delighted in the law of God with his whole heart, who is the spotless Lamb of God, offered up a perfect 
of us who believe. Jesus did it. His active obedience, where he kept the law, and his passive obedience, where he died on a cross to pay our whole debt, our infinite debt. He was the son of David, Jesus Christ our Lord, who offered up a perfect sacrifice, paying for our sin, living the life for us that we should have lived, and then dying the death for us that we should have died. This enables us to turn to the law and not be afraid of it condemning us. It cannot condemn us anymore. For all the condemnation that we deserve fell on Christ. This formerly dreaded law now becomes a delight. <laughs> it may sound too good to be true, but the biblical record of Christ's work on behalf of sinners is unimpeachable. I'm grateful. I, I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for the scriptural record of this glorious reconciling plan for the redemption of sinners. It was and it is efficacious. It really works. It really works. I'm a witness that it works. It works to make the love of God and the justice of God come together for his glory and for our good. It works to bring a song of hope to hearts that have been given to hopelessness and despair. It works to challenge the notion that sinful addictions and habits are yokes of bondage that cannot be broken. It works to confront the rapid legitimization of perversion in the culture. It works to end the domination of arrogance and greed as the paradigm for success in our times. It works. It works. It really works. Brothers and sisters, because of who the Lord God is and because of what he has done through the centuries to preserve the text of the Holy Scripture, we can have confidence that the events described in Scripture are accurate and historical. This is important for one crucial reason. We cannot get away from the fact that Christianity, biblical Christianity, unique among world religions, is not primarily founded on mere principles. Essentially, Christianity is founded on historical events in the life of our Lord Jesus, in his death, in his resurrection. Scripture reveals the central climax of history, God's gracious act of bringing salvation through Jesus Christ. The integrity and credibility of the word of God is not a small matter. Christianity is disproved if it is not historical. Other religions talk about mere visions here and there, but they don't have to get into history. They just get into mystery. We have to get into history. Our God has not disappointed us. Despite the distortions and the confusion that the enemy of our soul concocts to undermine the credibility of the word of God, his truth keeps marching on. Our God has responded to our deepest need with his indispensable word. Sola Scriptura. The reality is that we need a clear and definitive word. The, the rationale was to establish the unique and incomparable love and grace of God in the Bible. And the ultimate goal of God's redemptive narrative was the reconciling of our need in the person and work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. God's provision has been and continues to be as 
special spiritual cuisine for the elect of God. You heard right? Cuisine. <laughs> As their necessary food, the word of God is not only nutritious, giving our souls all that it needs for life and godliness, but it is also highly acclaimed and delightful to our taste. Isn't it good when the food is not just nutritious, but it tastes good? <laughs> the psalmist says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter <laughs> also than the honey and the honeycomb. I know that it's sweet indeed, but I'm sure that there's another witness here. Wouldn't you say the word of God is sweet indeed? <laughs> yes, it is sweet. Sweet to the weary soul who has finally found rest. It's sweet to the hurting soul who has finally found the balm in Gilead. It's sweet to the troubled soul who has finally found the peace. It's sweet to the confused soul who has finally found the answer. It's sweet to the lost soul who has finally found his way home. It's sweet to the triumphant soul who has finally found the doxology. But as sweet as it is, we need to affirm what's sweetest about the word of God. <laughs> you see, Jesus is still the sweetest name I know. You know the old song? <laughs> and he's just the same <laughs> as his lovely name. His sweetness is all over the word of God, all over the word of God. In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, he's the bronze serpent. In Deuteronomy, he's the promised prophet. In Joshua, he's the unseen captain. In Judges, he's my deliverer. In Ruth, he's my kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, he's the promised king. In Ezra and Nehemiah, he's the restorer of the nation. In Esther, he is my advocate. In Job, he's my redeemer. In the Psalms, he's my all in all. In the prophets, in the Proverbs, he's my pattern. In Ecclesiastes, he's my goal. And in Songs of Solomon, he's my beloved. In all the prophets, he is the coming prince of peace. In Matthew, he is Jesus, king of kings. In Mark, he's Jesus, servant of man. In Luke, he's Jesus, son of man. In John, he's Jesus, son of God. In Acts, he's ascended and sending. In the epistles, he's indwelling and filling. In Revelation, he is returning and reigning. Hallelujah. Jesus is sweet indeed. Thank God for his word. Amen.